Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here, coming to you for the first time in the month of November. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's kind of surprised with myself by uh, that statement, but it's a true statement. This is the first time we are coming to you in the month of November, and it's so glad to be, uh, or so good to be back with you once again, and I'm, uh, I'm sure we're all glad that we can be back together, right? Absolutely, and uh, this week I'm Dennis, the man who has finally had a get-off-my-lawn moment with the new neighbor kids and their dog. Ah, <laughs> uh, you've crossed that threshold in life, have you? Yes. Well, actually, it was just before recording that, you know, I say kids, they're probably early 20s, whatever. Youths. Youths of some kind. Young adults. Young adults. You know, Mike the Legend witnessed it as well. You know, they the, the neighbors seem to have... A dog. Well, don't seem to have a dog. They have a dog. The dog, I think it's a puppy of some kind. It's a husky puppy, so very rambunctious. Like, like not pure couple months old puppy, like maybe a year or two. It's it's a young husky. Yeah, young husky, a lot of energy, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, wants to get out and run, except this, the house that it lives at doesn't really have a yard, so if you don't have a yard, you should probably... Take it for walks and stuff, but like these guys, we're out. We had our first major snowfall here in Winnipeg, so like a couple of guys were out, you know, shoveling snow, and then they were just kind of letting the dog run around the neighborhood for some reason, or just around the block, which pretty dangerous considering we're pretty close to a busy street, and there was a front end loader kind of going up and down the back lane, so that could have ended very poorly. But you know, as I kind of looked out, the dog was. In our front yard, straight up digging up the yard, so I kind of opened up the door and started yelling, like, hey, what the hell's going on, kind of thing. And they just kind of froze, the dog froze, and then started running up to me, like, <laughs> like I'm a friendly person. So I was like, oh, no, no, no. And then the guy was like, oh, just kind of sauntering over, and it's like, well, is this your dog? What are you doing? <laughs> it's just like, uh, oh, sorry. It's like, yeah, keep an eye on your dog. <laughs> There's a distinct lack of haste with their movements to come get their dog. Yeah. Also, this dog was off-leash, also off-collar. Yeah, no collar, no leash. Looked like there was, like, a bit of a comedy of errors. It looked like they tried to put a leash on it, but it slipped out of the collar very easily, it looked like. So, maybe wrong-size collar. Maybe needed a harness instead of a collar. You know, whole, it was a whole thing. But uh the TLDR is I basically opened up the door and turned into, you know, that, you know, old man yelling at young kids to get off my lawn. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I... How do you feel now that you've crossed that uh, crossed that line, crossed that barrier? I mean, weird, but I felt justified in doing it. The dog was straight up digging a hole in the yard, which you can't really do. Like, what are you doing? It's not really appropriate or called for. No. And <laughs> now that I have a yard that I, you know, don't want to look like total crap, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's covered in snow now, but springtime will come around and I don't want it, all the grass to be totally ruined. Like, mm-hmm. that sucks. So, yeah, it was a it was an interesting experience. Uh, let this be a lesson out there for uh, any of you listening who might have dogs. Be good, responsible dog owners. Yeah, like take it for a good walk every day. I mean, if you're gonna have a big dog, maybe try to get a house with a big yard at least for it to run around in and a fence. And a fence. Yeah, because this place no fence. No yard, really, to speak of. 
a little bit surprising that you would get a husky, which is by all accounts a big dog. It, it will be a big dog with a lot of energy uh, that you need as the owner to help burn off. Yeah. It requires a certain level of activity. Huskies are not sedentary dogs. No. They're they're not floppy house dogs. No, they're not. They're like, you know, they're the closest type of dog. I mean, them and German Shepherds, I'd say, are the closest type of dogs to wolves still in terms of evolutionary distance. Mm-hmm. So, like, they still want to be, like, you know, a little bit of, like, the alpha there and run around and do whatever like that. It's like, you don't just let it run around the neighborhood. Like, that's not... It's not fair to anyone. Like, how would you feel if your dog, while running around the neighborhood, gets hit by a car? Like, come on. You should feel bad. Yeah, you should feel bad. And you're also putting it on someone else to also feel awful when they accidentally hit a dog that runs out that they weren't expecting to see. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if it's a busy street, which, you know, we live kind of by, like, there's trucks and stuff that go down there, like 18-wheeler style trucks. Like, you don't, like, with big trailers. Like, those can't stop on a dime. No, certainly not. So if a dog runs out in front of that, well, you know how it's going to end. The 18-wheeler always wins that battle, which yeah. is unfortunate. But this is why it is e- imperative to be good, responsible dog owners. Keep up. If you, they're outside, maybe you're working in your front yard and want to keep an eye on your dog... Have it on the leash, have it on its high out, have yeah. it on some sort of secure line so it can't just go run away. Yeah. Um, you know, keep that in mind with what you're doing, uh, and be aware and it, or at least, you know, if it's, uh, you, you trust your dog, at least have the collar slash harness on it so you can easily leash it if you need to. Yeah, because what will end up happening otherwise is if it runs away with no collar on, it's going to get picked up as a stray dog, mm-hmm. and there's going to be no way for them to know. I mean, yeah, dogs have chips and stuff in their ears and whatnot, but at a glance, when they pick it up, they'll be like, oh, there doesn't seem to be an owner. Like, the dog does not live with anyone. Yeah, so, where, where to return this dog to? Who knows? It's going to the pound now. Yeah. And that's not what you want. So, uh, yeah, there's there was a lot of errors that uh, we observed prior to recording this program on the part of your neighbor's. Fingers crossed they learn and become better. Time will tell. Yeah, time will have to tell, but, um, yeah, not great. Yeah, uh, smallish house with uh, no real yard and they got a husky. That's a bad choice. Yes, it is. Better, uh, better choice for them would have been a shih tzu. Yeah, shih tzu or a little, like, maybe a little pug or something. Like, yeah, some kind of small dog that, you know, isn't. That hard to burn, like, it, yeah, pugs and stuff when they're younger have a lot of energy as well. But, you know, lo- smaller legs, you can take it on a walk and, you know, a smaller distance will seem like a greater distance to a smaller dog. Sure will. So, if that's a concern as well, get a smaller dog. If you want and need to have a dog, but like, good God, man, like, <laughs> that's a husky, that's like, that's a pretty high level, like majestic kind of alpha dog. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's a top end breed you're going there for. I mean, I get it. We live in a cold climate and whatnot, uh, and you might think a husky is appropriate for the conditions. Certainly, as we observe, there's snow on the ground now, snow and ice, uh, as far as the eye can see. But y- yeah, they they still like to go run around in the wild. Gallop and bound through the snow. Yeah, dig in other neighbors' yards. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as the case in 
case today might indicate. But so yeah, just uh, word to the wise, uh, as I'm sure a lot of uh, listeners out there are dog owners or perhaps have become new dog owners through the course of the pandemic. Just uh, keep an eye on your dog. Collar on, tags on, don't let it run wild. Uh, if your dog is running wild, demonstrate some level of care and concern to go rein your dog in instead of just uh, letting it happen and being very nonchalant about the whole affair. Yeah. Yeah. The nonchalance was... Uh, that was the bothering part. That was the bothersome part. Between the three people who were out, there was nonchalance amongst all of them. And it was yeah. high. Yeah, I was just kind of staring at the dog. It's just like kind of laughing. It's like, get it off my yard. Oh, uh, sorry about that. Wander, wander, wander. Is this your dog? Get it off my yard. Oh, yeah, yeah sorry, it won't happen again. And then everyone goes inside with the dog. Like, <laughs> Well, you scared off the people and the dog then. Yeah, I, I guess so. So good job. That was, uh don't know if that was the aim, but it worked out that way regardless. But so, yes, uh dog and neighbor talk aside, uh we are your video game podcast. And as I said off the top, we are here with you for the first time in the month of November. Uh Apologies for being away last week. I had a family wedding to attend along with other related family events. It was a very nice, very beautiful ceremony uh, on the part of my cousin and her uh now husband who have been together for 16 years. Well, no, not 16, 12. Sorry, 12 years. <laughs> There's a difference in those numbers, excuse yes, me. there is. <laughs> uh, but it was a very lovely ceremony, very lovely, lovely reception. It was uh, a beautiful day that they had, even though it was just still an indoor ceremony. Uh, it was just a wonderful time all around. But uh, So really, the last time you have heard from us would have been the Halloween music special a couple of weeks back, right at the tail end of October. But the last time we've done one of these actual talking about gaming news type episodes has been since the middle of October. Yeah. It's been a month. Almost a month, yeah. Yeah, so in between that uh, was a uh, a week where uh, both Dennis and I were uh, not able to record because we were both in a different province <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, we were both in southern Ontario at the same time. Well, you were going to southern Ontario. I was yeah. in northern Ontario. Yeah. Uh, the where the distinction is between northern and southern is a little bit unclear to me because where you were is still pretty south, oh, I'd yeah. say, in terms of Ontario, but, uh. It's within spitting distance of Michigan. Yeah. So that seems like it should be considered southern Ontario, but I guess because it's not as south as Toronto and on, in Ottawa and stuff, I guess it's not southern Ontario. I, I suppose not. Anything that's not really in that penin, like Ontario peninsula. Yeah. Uh, is northern Ontario. Yeah. Whereas I was straight up in that Ontario Peninsula, you know, right living now, the good life. Yeah, living the good life, you know, hanging out, you know, just, uh, basically an hour outside of London, Ontario. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I was uh, out in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario working, but uh, you actually uh, popped into uh, my neck of the woods. Uh, you yep. were passing through. You actually got to see my where I work uh, somewhat. Uh, you got to see at least where I lay my head at night for may what was many nights at that point. Yes. Uh, you got to see how I'm treated, like the 1% out there in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. <laughs> yes. Wh which I deserve. Let's be clear. I deserve that treatment. Yes, of course. And that hotel suite. So it was good, but we couldn't bring you the show that occasion. And the Halloween show, spoiler alert, was pre-recorded. Yeah. It was not fresh for that week. It was in the can already. Yeah, but... Um, but here we are now. Yeah, here we are now. We just had a little bit of a show buffer, as it were. 
And uh, that buffer is now burned through, so now we need to get a move on here with a new show. <laughs> exactly. The people demand content, and we are here to deliver the content. And uh, it's going to be a very business-of-gaming-centric uh, program for you this week. There's a lot of uh, dollars and cents stories to be talking about. And one of them is our ludicrous leadoff for this week. It is a hell of a ludicrous leadoff. It's not necessarily current, but it is something that you may have missed, may have uh, not come across your your radar, perhaps it didn't come up in your news feed, whatever the case might be. This is going back to the end of October. But the news story being that an esports and gaming organization known as FaZe Clan is going to become a publicly traded entity that will value that organization of FaZe Clan to be around roughly one billion US dollars. Yeah, so one billion US dollars. So the reason why this is happening is because FaZe Clan is uh going public actually through a merger that's happening uh with a company called B. Riley Principal, a one fifty merger corp. And they are, from what I understand, the entity that's responsible for giving FaZe Clan the $1 billion valuation. Yes, uh, I believe this is what they're going through is uh, what's known as a SPAC deal, or this is uh, uh, something that's become very popular through the course of this year that I've seen, where there will be a company that already has a spot in the uh, New York Stock Exchange or some sort of uh, uh, um, securities trading listing, but they're not really a company that does anything. They don't make bicycles or candy or houses or anything of that nature. They're a company that just exists to merge with another company, and then that other company takes the place that the first company already had on the stock exchange. So it's a placeholder, and I believe SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company, where yeah. literally they don't do anything but merge and someone else gets their place in line. And becomes a publicly listed and traded company without having to go through all the regulatory hurdles, uh, the time that's involved, the paperwork that's involved, all the, all the cost uh, that's involved with that as well. So, uh, it's, it's a quick and easier and quick and dirty way to become a publicly traded company. Yeah. So I also think that that should set off maybe some warning bells. If you are a potential investor, someone who wants to invest in this company, keep that in mind that that's what you're buying. Mm-hmm. So you're, I mean, you're, the security could become halted at any point if, you know, they determine that this is not on the up and up, right? So. <laughs> I mean, once you're on there, you are subject to uh, certain regulations and uh, stipulations involved. But uh, the trick is just get on there and get, get trading, you know, get that money flowing and uh, get a market cap up there. Which, according to this, would uh, Face Clan would have a, like a, an, an evaluation around one billion dollars, which is crazy to think for an esports and gaming outfit. Yeah, like that's a giant market cap, like huge. I mean, it's not you know, there's trillion dollar companies. No, of course, but like that's not the norm. No, like the the norm is not. Even billion dollar companies, really, like most companies, when you see, if you're browsing through like, you know, a stock app or whatever else, when you look at market capitalizations, they're usually in the, like for bigger companies, like bigger, let's just say mid-sized to bigger companies, like if you think of like an auto manufacturer, like a Ford or something, for example, Ford might have a one and a half billion dollar market capitalization, mm-hmm. but they're Ford. 
Like, it, are they saying that they're comparable in size to Ford? You know, the first automobile company? Uh, in terms of market cap, apparently, yes. Yeah, so that's insane. Welcome to the new economy. Yeah. Where, where, you know, tech companies and, and basically anything tech is the new hotness. Uh, I mean, look at, uh, I think it was just the other day or perhaps even uh, last week where the, there was the, uh, new electric automaker Rivian. Yeah. Rivian doubled Ford's market capitalization. Yes. Which is also crazy. Almost in the blink of an eye. Yeah. And that was, that's why that, that's the reason why the Ford market capitalization number is in my head because I remember their their market capitalization for Rivian was something like 2.9 billion or something which all of the analysts were saying that's double ford and like it's more than dodge and chevrolet and stuff too which is like holy crap like and rivian is a new company a brand new company just publicly offered like <laughs> i don't understand where that valuation comes from it's it's seems wishy-washy in the same way that te- that uh, tesla is Right? Cause like. Oh yeah. What's their valuation based on? Uh, Tesla is back to trading at what a thousand dollars a share and they're the high, they have one of the highest market caps. If, and I don't think the highest. I think uh, Apple is probably still up there with like two trillion, if not two and a half trillion. Microsoft has just recently crossed the two trillion, uh, market cap threshold. I don't know if Tesla has quite crossed into that same realm of highest market cap with uh to be amongst the likes of Apple and Microsoft. Well, according to this one, I don't know how exactly how accurate this is, but uh Tesla's market cap is 1.037 trillion. Oh, okay. And they're apparently number 6 in the world in terms of their rank. Well, good for them. Uh with the top rank still being apparently Microsoft at 2.52 trillion. Followed by Apple at 2.4, Saudi Aramco at 2, Alphabet at 1.9, and Amazon at 1.7. Okay. And then Tesla, and then Meta at 948 billion, then Nvidia, then Berkshire Hathaway, and then TSMC to round out the top 10. And welcome to the financial, that's- Welcome to Financial financial Corner. Corner here on the arcade. You know. <laughs> so, so far in this episode, we've uh, covered yelling at uh, new neighbor kids and their dog to uh, get off your lawn, and uh, now we're talking about the stock market, market caps. Yeah, we truly are men in our late 30s. <laughs> it's happened. <laughs> it just happened very gradually that we didn't even notice. So, uh, stay tuned later on. We'll have an update on uh, Dennis's smoked meat uh, uh, progress, and uh, we'll talk a little bit of history uh, later on in the show, too. <laughs> yeah, we might get into some World War II um, talk here, you know, about, you know, maybe trench warfare of World War One. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. So, stay tuned for that. <laughs> it's happened. Yeah. Uh, but, but anyways, yeah. So, this new stock market, without getting back into, you know, deep stock market talk or anything... Yeah, it's like, I don't understand where a lot of this value comes from, and I'm wondering if a lot of it is just based on internet hype, in the same way that NFTs are getting their imaginary value from. I've got to believe hype is a large part of its speculation as well. Uh, I mean, look at the case of Rivian. They have no sales, and it could just be entirely a scenario of people dogpiling and thinking, well, Tesla is an electric automaker, and look at them. They're you know worthwhile, so i got to get in on this, because this will obviously become like the next new Tesla, and then yeah. I'm going to have like you know 10x returns. Yeah, because, you know, if Tesla stock is over $1,000 each right now, and Rivian is obviously not that yet. 
Um, there's the hope that it will be that, yeah, Rivian's at 130 right now. Yeah, so, so a tenth. Yeah, so <laughs> if the thought is that all electric automakers are suddenly going to become the same level as Tesla, you know, even though it doesn't factor into the fact that, like, you know, a lot of Tesla is the cult of personality of Elon Musk. Oh, God, yes. And also, it's crazy how a lot of the crypto market is based on reading into tweets that Elon Musk makes. What? Yeah, which is just a thing that, you know, I've been kind of looking at. Not that I'm in the crypto market, like, you know, I'm not particularly interested in how volatile it is, but certain coins and stuff will go up by twice or down by twice, like half of their value based on Elon Musk tweeting a picture that of like, you know, oh, he's he tweeted a picture with a dog in it. That means Dogecoin should go up and then people will go into a frenzy or like, oh, there's this other thing he tweeted. So that means you know, maybe Ethereum should go up or Dogecoin should go down and the new Shib- Shiba Inu coin should go up or whatever. And it's just like, holy crap, what's wrong with everyone? So based on what you're just telling me, it sounds like in our modern 21st century advanced technologically uh, uh, dependent civilization, we are still very much uh, re- devolving back to early civilizations and our storytellers. Yes, and uh things being explained by the movements of the stars and and you know that shooting star going across the sky is well really that's just the gods sending us a message that blah 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 yeah <laughs> and also a lot of it is sort of sort of reminding me of uh that south park episode where you know the economy crashed and then randy marsh tries to become like a prophet for the economy and he's treating it like this it's this like unknown thing where it's like oh you can't mistreat the economy you never know how the economy is going to treat you back and it's just like no but like there's markers you can use you idiot there's economists like <laughs> like economics is a whole field of study and there's reasons why things happen like yeah like there is a certain degree of randomness when things go viral and stuff but there's still also like the S&P 500, for example, there's a reason why, like, you might want to invest in an index fund or something like that over just some hot stock of the day because, mm-hmm. like, no, these actually, like, have people researching and, like, curating, like, good businesses and things that are actually doing well on paper as well as doing well in reality and also able to uh, uh, forecast trends and see perhaps the directions that some companies uh, might uh, have go f- going forward, uh, uh, be able to note tailwinds or headwinds uh, that might impact a company's performance and therefore its share price. Yeah, and those tailwinds and headwinds are not just like omens of some guy's Twitter account. They don't portend a dark future. No. Just because a, cr- a crow flew across the sky. Like... Sure, something Elon Musk tweets might, like, if it's something about Tesla and it doesn't sound good, I could see Tesla stock dropping. That makes sense. <laughs> or like, hey, Tesla's going to do this crazy thing. Maybe that might be a good thing. Like, okay, maybe that'll raise the stock. See, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense that, you know, he would tweet something, some random picture and then a totally unrelated market, like on some crypto coin would crash or something like that. Like, but it's, I'm worried that, you know, a lot of that 
reasoning is going into the valuation of some of these companies. Like, is that all you're doing? Like, what is, what's the reasoning behind all of this stuff? Like, can you explain it to me or can you not? You see, humanity has made new gods. <laughs> Elon Musk is one of them. Yeah, well. Jeff Bezos another, Mark Zuckerberg another. Uh, they're not always benevolent gods. No. They're not always malevolent gods, but uh, they are gods all the same. Yeah, well. They, they're put on a pedestal and held up by a great number of uh, people in society, and uh, their words are taken as gospel. Yeah, well, you know, I'd make some joke about still being an atheist, but hey, <laughs> whatever. Serves you no good here. I, I guess. But back to this story. Now back to this story. A billion dollar market capitalization for an esports league? Uh, entity. Esports and gaming organization. So they are basically just a, a clan that will have teams in a number of different leagues or competitive uh, gaming series uh, and things of that nature. So they're effectively a sports team. Somewhat, yeah. 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 So what sports team is worth a billion dollars? Uh, probably a number of NFL teams that have been around for 50, 60, 100 years. Yeah, there are a number of them. Uh, got to imagine the Yankees, Red Sox, uh, maybe Mets, although they also have a very dysfunctional ownership group. Uh, but basically, it's possible. Organizations that have a long lifespan that have made, that have actually legitimately worked up to that value. Legacies. Yeah, legacies and name recognition and, you know, you'll you'll see people wearing hats with their logos and have been seeing people wearing hats with their logos for 50 years. Like Manchester United, Real Madrid, things of, you know, squads of that nature. The Montreal Canadiens, I mean, maybe Toronto Maple Leafs. Like like classic things where you would associate like, oh, and you think football, oh, maybe the Raiders, even though they've gone through a number of different things, but the Raiders are still a recognizable entity. Dallas Cowboys. the Green Bay Packers or whatever else. Like... Baseball teams, like you said, like, you know, you'll see... <laughs> Yankees, Red Sox. Yankees, Red Sox, Mets. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, probably San Francisco Giants. Uh, maybe LA Angels. Uh, that's to be determined. Uh, but there are teams yeah. where you can cross that billion-dollar threshold. Probably Chicago Bulls as well, I would imagine. Yeah. Ooh, Chicago Cubs. That'd be one. Yeah. Uh, forgot about them. Yeah, but <laughs> these are like... I don't want to disparage esports as being too new, but it's kind of too new, right? Like, like what happens? Like, is this like I don't know if it's still a trend? Maybe, like I don't know what the long, long life longevity of esports is going to be. Like, maybe in twenty years, people will still be all in on esports, but you know, fundamentally, like. I think this is also an interesting question. Will people still be playing the same games in 20 years? Mm. Like, for these leagues, like, I I think that's part of the problem. Like, the game of basketball, for example, the game is still the same. There have been tweaks to the rules over the years, but fundamentally, you look at a basketball game from the 1950s, you look at a basketball game from now, it's the same game. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, there might be different lines drawn on the, you know, floor, and there might be different rules surrounding, like, travel and whatever else that have come in through the years, but they're fundamentally the same game. Mm -hmm. So there's a clear trajectory to, like, how people have gotten better at that game over the years, Mm -hmm. and why, you know, fans might 
you know, there might be analysts and talking heads and stuff built up over years of history and understanding theory and stuff surrounding the game. Is this going to happen with esports? How is this going to happen with esports? I don't know how that would work, uh, given that uh, the games that are played, something like an Overwatch or Call of Duty or whatnot, um, they will have to change and evolve as time goes forward. But it's going to have to stay the same game fundamentally. Mm-hmm. How do you balance that? Yeah, and I understand. And how are you going to keep people interested? Because I'm sure in 20 years, League of Legends isn't going to look like a great video game anymore compared to other video games. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure aesthetics and visuals and and audio cues and sounds of the game those will improve as the technology improves. But the same gameplay mechanics uh, would that not get tiring of watching you know a, a League of Legends match? Uh, you know the same style approach. In 10, 15 years' time as... In 50 years' time. In, yeah. Like, like I, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask, what's esports going to look like in 50 years? Is this billion dollars justified now? Like... I mean, in theory, it might be justified now, but in 50 years, you're maybe not... Uh, Getting your money back from it, uh, but who knows? Yeah, or is it like a bubble that's going to burst very quickly? Like, I, 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 I'm just, I'm trying to understand it here. I'm not trying to like, you know, shit on anyone's major interest right now. Like, that's fine. Like, be into into esports and stuff, but like, where is this money coming from? It's a, obviously people who think there's money to be made from it. Like, does esports truly have like NFL numbers? Uh, not as far as I know. So I don't think it has uh, the, the you know certain leagues or whatever don't have the name cachet, uh, the brand value that the NFL does. Yeah. Uh, to compare to professional sports leagues, so or or even the sponsorship numbers, the sponsorship deals, uh, they're a fraction of what a professional sports league has, like the NFL or NBA. Yeah. So these are all. I like to think these are valid questions surrounding this valuation, but it honestly doesn't make sense to me. Accept it, go forward. That's all we can do. So as part of the deal, the uh, the merger company, the B. Riley Principal 150 Merger Corp, that is uh, basically merging with the FaZe Clan. They're giving the FaZe Clan $291 million to uh, basically fund this transaction, which FaZe will then use, apparently, to... Uh, on- fund their ongoing global growth efforts, including uh, potential future acquisitions. As part of this transaction, uh, the BRPM, essentially the placeholder on the stock market, they will change their name to Phase Holdings, and the combined company will trade under the ticker symbol F-A-Z-E. That's F-A-Z-E, not F-A-Z-E. We're not a Yankee. <laughs> no. Uh, the transaction is expected, clo- expected, to, expected to close within the first couple months of the year 2022. So sometime early next year, maybe spring, you're going to be able to start buying and selling shares, uh, ownership shares in the FaZe Clan on a stock market through whatever your brokerage app is. Yeah. Never thought we'd be saying that. No. <laughs> it's very... Yeah, it's very strange. Very strange. One thing um, I've learned in my life over the, certainly over these past couple of years is just don't ask questions. <laughs> like it's easier just to kind of go with it and accept things as they are on face value. That question nothing. <laughs> the more you, you question things and dig into it, just the, that's where the rage and anger comes from. Yeah. As evidenced by the last 10 minutes of me going off about this. Right? <laughs> yeah. 
How's that working for you? How's the blood pressure going? I mean, uh, let's not go there just yet. It's uh, probably fine. But I like that. It's probably fine. <laughs> yeah, well. I respect the confidence. I also respect the denial as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, but let's move on from the ludicrous leadoff to another big billion uh, dollar deal that's happening in the gaming world. Uh, a, a lesser name uh, than uh, perhaps FaZe Clan. You might not be as familiar with this one, but certainly it's an important part of the gaming landscape. Though I would say maybe not. I was familiar with this name and I wasn't familiar at all with FaZe Clan. Perhaps there's an age separation to that as well. It could be, but go on. Also, continue. your circle of work might take you... Uh, Leads you to be more aware of this. Yeah, and my interests in general, I think. But anyways, yeah. go on. So uh, one of the big names in the back-end infrastructure that helps make the gaming world work is Unity. Yes. Developers of the Unity engine. Uh, it's uh, alongside Unreal Engine 4. Basically, your two big choices for gaming engines uh, if you're doing any sort of game development. Yeah. Uh, so Unity is a big name. Unity Software, also a publicly traded company. Yes. They're, I think, up to $55 billion at my last check. So they're up there. They are a, a very, very big, valuable company. It's only been within the last maybe year to two years that they went public as a company. But from that, they have generated uh, a fair amount of, of revenue, and they are applying some of that revenue to an M&A. They are doing an acquisition or merger and acquisition with Weta. Yes. So Weta Digital... Um, if you're not aware, they are the visual effects wizard company, basically, behind, you know, some of the most visually impressive movies of the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. so I, I want to say really starting with Lord of the Rings and then really like being involved with a lot of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I feel like now they're kind of one of those go-to digital effects studios. Yeah. Like, whereas, you know, the landscape of 20 years ago might have been Industrial Light and Magic and or Skywalker Studios and whatnot, after Lord of the Rings kind of took over, you know, in terms of like, you know, this is really where the standard should be, Weta were the ones that kind of became that. Uh, absolutely. And, I mean, what better, uh, what better demo reel for your work than those first three Lord of the Rings movies? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so Unity is acquiring Weta to the tune of $1.625 billion. And another interesting caveat, you were aware of this fact. I wasn't entirely aware of this fact, so I don't know how many other people out there are aware of this fact that Weta was co-founded and co-owned by Peter Jackson. Yeah, the filmmaker Peter Jackson, the guy who directed Lord of the Rings. And whose most recent work is going to be that Beatles documentary. Which I'm intrigued by. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Very intrigued by. Uh, but Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, did The Hobbit, uh, did, you know, the, uh, I think 2010 King Kong movie with Jack Black. Uh, he's done a lot. Uh, he did a lot before. Yes, he, he did. He made it big. Uh, so I think when we started talking before this show was being recorded, uh, that what is like a 25 to 30 year old company, my brain jumped to like, oh, they did the effects for like bad meat or is it bad taste? Yeah, but. No, they didn't. No, I don't think they were around yet. No. No. Um, but it was mid-90s. Yeah, mid-90s, you know, still with the first movie that they worked on was a Peter Jackson movie, which is telling, right? It's certainly. Uh, I believe something called Heavenly Creatures, then yeah. worked on The Frighteners, Contact, and then got into the 2000s, and then... Lord of the Rings, and then from there forward, basically only, like, the most 
triple A of movies. Yes. That need, that are effects and, uh, shot heavy in that nature. So. Yeah. This is an interesting kind of deal where Unity is buying a lot of the back-end tools and engineering and engineers themselves, but the visual effects component is being spun off into a different company that yeah. Peter Jackson is still going to own. So I think when all is said and done that the visual effects side of things will still go forward, they will be called Weta FX or Weta VFX, uh, sorry, Weta FX, that's still going to be mostly owned by Peter Jackson. But the engineering, the technology, the tools uh, for that they developed along the way of being Weta and coming up with the visual effects infrastructure uh, and basically needing to troubleshoot and resolve issues as they went up or come up with new ways of doing things, all that's going to go to Unity. Yes. So if you're uh, going to be a developer, when this is all said and done, there's still time required to make this deal close and then merge in the tools and assets into the Unity ecosystem. Yeah. So it'll be a while before you can really get your hands on this, but once this closes and the full suite of everything is available to developers, Unity is going to be even more robust for uh, 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 game development and animation engine. Yeah. It's going to be ridiculous and just help Unity rival Unreal and the Unreal Engine. Yeah, exactly. So, a hell of a $1.625 billion. Yeah, so, uh... I don't know how much of that Peter Jackson gets, but sweet Jesus God. Like, I think there's only three principles, but I don't know, like, if they have, like, a board or anything like that, but if he's one of the principal owners, it's going to be a big chunk of it. It sure is. So, he never has to work again. I mean, he already didn't have to. No, no, he really didn't. I mean, anything he's doing now is just because he still likes doing it, obviously, but, uh, yeah. Now, now he, maybe he'll go back to schlocky horror movies. You know what? Like, you know, now that he's just kind of like, I'm set for life, I'm gonna make Bad Taste 3, or Bad, whatever. You know, <laughs> you know? Meet the Feebles Part 2, The Revenge. Yeah, or something ridiculous. <laughs> or he's too big of a name to do trash like that now, but who knows? Yeah, he won't debase himself with such filth. Yeah. <laughs> Even or, though that's where he started? Yeah. Maybe he will, though. Who knows? Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. I mean, the, his first three movies were really enjoyable movies. Yeah, they're garbage, but they're real fun. I mean... They're fun, schlocky movies. Yeah, like, in the in the vein of, like, Army of Darkness. Like, I mean, Dead Alive is amazing. Like, if you like goofy zombie horror movies, that might be one of my favorite ones, because it's just so insane. Oh, God. Especially at the very start with the uh, stop-motion animation Rat. Yeah. That is such a terribly cheesy effect. Yeah, but then culminating in, like, I'm just going to say the lawnmower scene. <laughs> and also, like, you know, a few of the ridiculous lines, like that the line that one priest says at one point. I'm not going to... Anyways, without getting down, you know, a Peter Jackson, you know, rabbit, rabbit hole. hole. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, anyways. So, so going forward uh, in game development, uh, anything on Unity should look better. Yeah. You know... Not now, and not in the immediate near-term future, but down the line, like three to five years down the line. Yeah. With the suite of tools and engineers now being part of Unity. So that's impressive. But uh, some a deal 
that could be worth in the billions uh, was maybe settled or we thought was settled uh, a couple months ago with the judgment that came down in the lawsuit between uh, Apple and Epic Games. Uh, in that judgment, it was ruled that, yes, uh, Fortnite did breach, uh, breach their developer contract, their terms of service with Apple, and Apple was fully justified to take Fortnite off the App Store and no longer make it available. But in that judgment... Uh, Judge Yvonne Gonzalez-Rogers uh, did have a little caveat in there that Apple is compelled to allow developers to inform the public and users about other means of paying for things and, and doing transactions and microtransactions uh, with the developer of whatever app you're using. And it doesn't necessarily have to be through the App Store. Yeah, so like if you are a developer on an iOS device and you want to offer microtransactions or open up some sort of subscription model or something, not through the App Store, the idea now is that you should be allowed to do it without Apple penalizing you in any sort of way. Mm -hmm. So you should be able to bring up your own proprietary style pop-up to say, hey, click here to go to, you know, our website to buy a subscription and then come back when you're done and whatever else, then you'll have all these new features unlocked in this game, app, whatever. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah. As opposed to having to do it all through the App Store and Apple taking their cut. Yeah, exactly. So that that was one of the facts uh, that uh, Epic Games was fighting against. Uh, I mean, they lost the battle. Maybe they'll win the war, but they they did win another battle by having this uh, motion br- uh, get brought forward and in Essentially, it's an injunction uh, prohibiting Apple from penalizing developers for that. Apple actually uh, filed a suit to try and have that injunction delayed, if not tossed out, and it was uh, dealt with by the same judge, same yeah. trial judge they had, who just last week, or not last week, earlier this week, uh, did rule that, uh, sorry, Apple, SOL. Yeah. Denied your injunction, your, your, your request to... Dismiss the injunction, has been denied, the injunction is going forward. So Too bad. Effective December 9th, any app on the uh, Apple App Store will be able to start telling consumers, hey, there's another way to pay us, it doesn't have to be through the App Store, there's another means, and they'll be able to start circumventing uh, Apple and having to not pay Apple their share, that one-third share of every transaction that happens on the platform. Yeah. So fantastic in her ruling or in her in the finding that uh, was released, Judge Yvonne Gonzalez Rogers uh, said that Apple's motion was based on a selective reading of the court's findings and ignored key details, saying specifically, quote, Apple's motion ignores all of the findings which supported the injunction, namely uh, incipient antitrust conduct, including super competitive commission rates resulting in extraordinarily high operating margins, which have not been which have not been correlated to the value of its intellectual property. This incipient antitrust conduct is the result in part of the anti-steering policies which Apple has enforced to harm the competition. As a consequence, the motion is fundamentally flawed. End quote. So, there's a lot of legalese in there. Yeah, and they they do say Apple still maintains the convenience of in-app pricing, and if it can compete on pricing, developers may opt to capitalize on that convenience, including any reassurance that Apple provides to consumers that it may provide a safer or better choice. But the fact remains, it should be their choice. Consumer information, transparency, and consumer choice is in the interest of the public. 
So like, that's a very interesting thing. So if I'm offering an app, I may want to offer, you know, two different forms of you paying for a subscription to my app. You know, I, I might be offering some news service or whatever. It doesn't have to be a game. Mm-hmm. It can be, you know, a widget service. It might even be like something like an Amazon Prime for my store or something like that. Some health app or something. Yeah, who knows? I might offer like, hey, click on my button to go to my website to buy a membership for, you know, $40 a year. Or click the Apple button here and like, you know, it'll it'll happen all in-app and whatever, but it'll be $100. Mm-hmm. Because frankly, you know, like to make the same amount of money, that's what it has to be. But they're both going to be effectively the same. It's just up to you which one you want to go through because Apple might seem more secure, but you know, yeah. So this is going to be an interesting, uh, interesting to see what happens here. Yeah. How many uh, developers, how many studios are there day one on December 9th to uh, let people know, hey, you don't have to pay through the App Store anymore. And uh how will this affect Apple's, you know, $1.7 trillion market capitalization is the next question. Well, this To is bring a, it back to that last story we were talking yeah, certainly, about. Certainly, yes, yes. Uh, and as we talk about, uh, this is all dollars and cents here on the arcade. Uh, <laughs> smoke Meat Corner is just ahead. Stay tuned. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but, yeah, that's... Uh, I, I mean... These are recurring transactions that Apple really isn't having to do that much for in order to uh, earn their one-third share of the transaction. So it adds up. Like the these small transactions, small transactions, small transactions, they are what has helped lead Apple to be, you know, one of the big tech companies that they have become. Yep. One of the fan group of companies. One of the fan group, yes. And by spreading their hardware far and wide, you know, all into the wind, well, then that's just more people with more Apple devices using your Apple ecosystem, which then gets you more opportunities for tra- microtransactions, uh, you know, getting that one-third uh, share of a transaction on your App Store. It's basically just spreading the App Store far and wide. So the real aim is to just pimp out the app store as much as Apple can. Yeah. And, and get as much as they can in terms of transactions. Yeah, exactly. So this is going to cut into it. Is it going to be significant? I wouldn't suspect right at the start. I mean, for a lot of developers, there's just the ease of sure. Let Apple handle it. Yeah. But you know, it does get to a certain point when it's just like, man, like if you are at the point now where your, your app is making steady income, you know, like, it, let, let's let's say you're a one-man shop, and you've put out, you know, a pretty simple but pretty useful app, and you've got some user base, and you're making, you know, let's say you're doing $100,000 in sales a year. You're still only pocketing seventy grand. Yeah. So, you know, like, $30,000 is being lost, and that's even before taxes and everything. Mm-hmm. So, like... Really, your $100,000 is now $70,000, which is really probably closer to $30,000 because of taxes and all that other stuff. So, maybe not 30, 50, let's say. Yeah. But still, you know, (laughs) that 50 could be closer to 70 or 80 if you didn't have to pay a 30% fee, Mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, and really, frankly, for Apple, it's like they've done no work and now they're getting a $30,000 
extra windfall just for no reason. Mm-hmm. Just because of someone else using their ecosystem. I mean, it makes sense on their part why they would want to do that, but you'd think as a developer, it's like, I'm at a point now where I want a choice. Like, hey, like, yeah, like this choice is, it's still 20%, but it's better than 30. That's 10 extra thousand dollars in my pocket. And I'm, I'm only using the number of a hundred thousand dollars a year. Like that's, you know, kind of big, but also not very big, right? Like there's companies that make $10 million a year. And when you're making $10 million a year, that's $3 million. Sure is. And that's uh, nothing to sneeze at. No. $3 million for no work on your part for just basically maintaining a basic level of ecosystem. Off one company, off one app. Yeah. Yeah, it adds up. And uh, like I said, I'm sure that's what's helped uh, lead Apple to being one of the big tech companies, the big evil tech companies, let's be clear. Yes. Uh, that uh, dominate Silicon Valley and uh, really the North American economy. Mm-hmm. So, or the world economy, really. Well, yeah, they, true. They are big players in the world economy, too. So, yeah, there's yeah. that. We'll see. And not only that, uh, that's just Apple. Uh, I'd imagine this is precedent setting for any future lawsuits uh, that uh, involve Google as well. Yeah. And it, it, let's just be clear too. Um, this was just based on Epic. The the main thrust of the this main lawsuit being that they were taken off of the App Store unfairly. If they now want to change the focus of that lawsuit to something different, now that they know that it's, you know, amenable to kind of go after Apple in an antitrust kind of fashion, they might choose to do that later on with a new lawsuit, mm-hmm. right? So it's just based on whatever the focus of the lawsuit is and what evidence they're willing to present. So, yeah, we are we are not anywhere near out of the woods with this whole, you know, Epic trying to take down all these massive companies thing yet. No, certainly not. And even with the conclusion of the uh, Epic Games Apple lawsuit, Fortnite is still not available on the App Store again. It's still not back up on iOS. No. And Apple has told as much to Epic Games, uh, and Tim Sweeney and Epic Games, that it will not be back up until the uh, legal process has run its course, which is years down the line. Yeah. Once, uh, once the appeals and motions to appeal and everything have run their course and timelines to appeal have run their course. So that's still, I think, three to five years down the line. Yeah, which, in terms of Epic's money and income and stuff, it's not in, not insignificant. No, they're putting a lot of resources into this uh, lawsuit. Business lawyers uh, and business trial lawyers are not cheap. No, they're not. Especially if you are wanting to argue in front of federal judges, you're you're paying that much more. You're not you're not getting friendly old Gil, whose office is in a strip mall right next to <laughs> uh, a nail salon and also a taco bar. Yeah, exactly. So an yeah. orange Julius, perhaps. Ooh, I wouldn't be against that. That'd be nice. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so we'll see how this all plays itself out. It potentially has uh, ramifications too for the big console makers as well as they each have their own ecosystem for online purchasing. Uh, Xbox does uh, certainly the PlayStation Store. Nintendo is no different with the eShop. Uh, so that is a source of re- revenue for them. But still, their meat and potatoes of revenue as a company is hardware sales. Yeah, which they've done very well with the Switch. Yeah, like the Switch. In particular, you know, since it's come out, 
I don't know if anyone was expect. Like, I don't know what anyone was expecting when this crazy, weird little tablet type thing mm-hmm. was first announced. I don't recall exactly what my reaction was. I thought it looked kind of neat, but I wasn't sure. But you know, after getting hands on and actually having one for a few years now, I I totally get why it is as popular as it is, and so did a lot of other people. Um, that number being eight point three million other people. Uh, that's just in this last six months alone. Yeah. Uh, which brings the total lifetime sales of the Switch up to almost 93 million units. Yeah. Sorry, 92.87 million units, according to Nintendo's latest financial report, which, uh, uh, includes the six months up to an ending on September 30th of 2021. So, yeah, they added another 8.3 million Switch units in terms of hardware sales. Yeah, so that, that still doesn't quite make it the best selling Nintendo hardware of all time. That still rests, you know, with the Wii, which was 101.63 million sales, but, you know, it's eclipsed Nintendo's third best-selling console, which was the NES, which did achieve 61.91 million sales uh, over its lifetime. And the Switch is now the seventh best-selling console of all time. Like handheld or just home console, doesn't matter. It is now the seventh best. Yeah. And it's only going up. It's only going up. There's no end in sight for the Switch. I mean, they just kind of came out with the... or They're, they're in the process of... Finishing, or I guess it has come out yet. The OLED model? Yeah. Yeah, it came out at the start of October alongside yeah. uh, Metroid Dread. Yeah, which, you know, it wasn't really much of an upgrade, but, you know, slight screen improvement, slight battery improvement. Uh, better speakers. Yeah, better speakers. So, yeah, but fundamentally still the same device still. You can still plug it into the dock and use it in a switch type fashion. You can switch between mobile and on your TV. So that's the whole crux of it. And that's, uh, yeah, it's still uh it's still going. There's no end in sight for when, you know, they're planning on their next generation console because I want to say it feels like we're only like halfway through this generation for Nintendo. Uh entirely possible and once we get into March, we'll be hitting the 5th anniversary of the Switch. Yeah. And by that point, it will have cr- I imagine it will have crossed the 100 million units sold threshold. If not, it'll be very close to it. I imagine there'll be su- uh supply constraint issues as we go forward into the holiday season uh, because everyone and everything is facing su- supply constraint issues. Uh the global supply chain of course being turned on its ear. Yeah. Exactly. And like 70 cargo ships sitting off the coast of San Diego. <laughs> yes. At any given moment. Exactly. Like, it's it's a mess right now. Also, the COVID manufacturing thing with the chip shortage and all the other stuff, too, causing massive problems, which we'll talk about a little later on. But uh, We will. Just staying on the Nintendo vein yeah. for a minute, though, as there were other details in their financial reporting. Yeah, but uh, I, I think ultimately, well, yeah, like, I, I was just going to say, as long as Nintendo keeps putting out games that people want to buy, I think... The most important takeaway, whatever, without getting too far into the weeds of extra numbers, the big takeaway for the Nintendo Switch is it will continue to sell as long as they keep having exclusive games. Like, I think more than any other system, the Nintendo Switch is proving that. Like, it's not the most gutsy hardware. It's not, like, yeah, it's a bit novel, but is the novel, you know, is, is, you know, the, the, the novelty of this console that is both a handheld as well as the home console enough to justify it being the one that people buy over, you know, an Xbox or a PlayStation? Maybe not, but ultimately, 
the Xbox and PlayStation are a little bit homogenous in terms of what games you can buy on them. I mean, yeah, there's first parties, but there's been some, you know, news reports that have come out recently showing that actually the people who are playing these consoles aren't really playing them for their first party titles largely, whereas Nintendo are. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, there are other titles that are exist on the Switch and I'm sure are selling well. Like, you know, there's Skyrim exists there and it's been on every other console, Diablo 3, et cetera, et cetera. But really when, you know, people are talking about the games that they're playing on the Switch, they're first party Nintendo titles. And Nintendo consoles have always really been driven by the first party Nintendo exclusives, but it's, it seems like Nintendo is just, uh, really doing a better job of having a more consistent stream of those first party titles. Yeah. And delivering them, uh, to maybe make up for a gap in third party support, which Nintendo has had consoles that, uh, really are kind of hard up for third party support. You know, the Wii U, the GameCube being examples that immediately come to my mind. Yeah, exactly. So I think Nintendo perhaps has realized, and this could be a byproduct of just only having one machine to develop for, and therefore all your software teams are only working on one machine instead of splitting them working on a specific home console and a specific handheld. Or having to develop a framework like Unity or whatever else where, you know, it's build once and then deploy everywhere type thing where it's like, okay, well, let's build it using this framework that we've built, and then we have to also build these tools to, like, let us compile the game down for the Switch, compile it down for the PlayStation, compile it down for the Xbox, compile it down for PC, compile it down for Mac. Mm-hmm. You know, like, have the the uh, the Steam build, the whatever else build, and then maybe even having to maintain your own, like, storefront. Like, if you're going to release things on the on the you know, the computer ecosystem where it's like, okay, do we want to go through Steam or do we want to make our own? Because we're Nintendo and we have, you know, enough games. So that without worrying themselves with that, by basically controlling the message and saying, yeah, we there's only this one place where you can get Nintendo games and people know there's a certain level of quality with Nintendo games. So, hmm. Exactly. And then the th- any third-party support, I think, is gravy. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> so, but, you know, the first party titles, people really coming to them, uh, and supporting them on the Switch in spades. The best sold Nintendo first party title, uh, is the best selling game on the Switch platform. And it's, uh, uh, actually now officially the best selling entry in this game's uh, franchise history. It is Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. Yeah. So, a port of a Wii U game uh is the best-selling game on the Switch. Yeah, which also in a weird way does speak to Nintendo's business acumen, right? Because they didn't re-release every game that was on the Wii U for the Switch. Nope. Like there were a few that they have, like you know the new like the Skyward the, Sword. Skyward Sword, this game, a couple of others that, you know, they they did see, but that, that's the thing. They saw the potential for the game itself, and rather than just, you know, really just let it die with a console and just trying to force people to buy that other console, they thought, okay, never mind. That console, it's a sinking ship now. This is the new console, but let's try to salvage what, you know, we thought should have worked on that console now on this new console. Because mm-hmm. frankly, like, the interest does seem to be there, and like the interest was there on that console. It's just the console didn't get legs because 
whatever reason. Other reasons, yeah. Yeah, but for this, it's like they saw, actually, this is a really good opportunity. This game is done. It might not be a lot of work for us to port it over to the Switch. So now that we've ported it to the Switch, actually, yeah, good, good, good call, Nintendo. Good call, us. And not only that, the, the release of the uh, of the game Mario Kart 8 Deluxe was about a month after the launch of the Wii. Or launch of the Switch, I should say. Yeah. So people are still hungry for games, and that's still before any sort of big ramp-up of third-party support, any big ramp-up of, you know, Nintendo first-party support. So there's still kind of a scarcity of titles out there. Yeah. And Mario Kart 8, or just a Mario Kart game, is something that can be played by any age group. Yeah. It doesn't have a specific niche focus. It's not something that will only cater to, you know, one demographic, one age group, or whatever the case. Literally anyone can play it. I have played it with my eight-year-old eight year old niece. Yeah. As I'm sure you've played it with, you know, uh, siblings, similar age, you know, maybe older. Hell, your parents, if they wanted to, could play Mario Kart 8. Exactly. You know, I've played it with random groups of friends. You know, played it with kids of the friends' kids and stuff like that. And, yeah, it's... It, like, Mario Kart truly has historically always been sort of like, you know, one of those all ages can really literally enjoy it. It's a level playing field. There's, you know, except for, you know, when, you know, the 16-year-old niece tries to challenge me to Mario Kart on the Super Nintendo, then I will destroy her. <laughs> I have more than her life's worth of experience playing that game, but... uh <laughs> the younger generation don't understand. No, but like with the you know Mario Kart Eight, it's more of a level playing field. Like, yeah, it's a newer game. Anyways, all that aside, yeah. So, good call on Nintendo for releasing it again, and you know, clearly a good call since it's the best selling game on their console. Best selling game on their console, and it's the best selling Mario Kart game of all time, according to Nintendo's recent financial numbers. Uh, uh, in the previous six months, uh, it added three point three four million more copies to its sales total, bringing it to a lifetime to date total of thirty eight point seven four million copies sold of Mario Kart Eight Deluxe. So roughly one in three people who buy a Switch are also buying Mario Kart Eight. Yeah, I mean, I was one of them. That's a hell of a good install base. Yeah, it's a really good install base, and that's, I think, what you would consider a console mover. Like that—that that is what you would consider a killer app, right? Yes. And it, like it's a must-play thing, or even if it's not the thing that makes you want to buy the console, it is a thing. Like once you've got the console, you'll probably want to buy that game anyways. It like it works either. It works probably in that latter fashion, but it's almost like a yeah. I'll pick up a Mario Kart game. Yeah, you played it over at a friend's house or something. Yeah, it seemed fun. I'll get it for myself. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So it is uh, a solid title, and those sales uh, through the past six months of 3.34 million added to the lifetime total of Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, again bringing it to 38.74 million copies, uh, outpaced the second best-selling title on the Switch, uh, which according to the lifetime software sales chart for the Switch that I'm currently looking at, uh, Animal Crossing New Horizons, which... Let's be clear, its its sales pace has dr- slowed dramatically since March of 2020. Yeah. But it is still impressive all the same. So Animal Crossing New Horizons in a year and a half has sold 34.85 million units. Yeah, definitely still nothing to sneeze at. Certainly not. So it's it's slowed down, that's fine, it's still up there, but uh, I think the lead of Mario Kart 8 is growing, but... Uh, it's not just all these big uh, titles, you know, the big 
your first, uh, you know, maybe gen Switch titles that Nintendo was having success with. Uh, Metroid Dread, we referenced it earlier, came out at the start of October. According to Nintendo sales figures, had the best debut sales month ever for any Metroid game. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, yeah, for even these games that don't necessarily seem like they're going to be the major console movers or the must-have app for the console, still doing really well. Like, surprisingly well. For a first month of a game being released, for 800, like, Metroid Dread apparently sold 854,000 copies. And that's just in the U.S. in its first month uh, of October being on sale. Which, not even, it wasn't even a full month. It went on sale on October 8th, so it lost that first week of sales time. Yeah. So three weeks worth of sales, and it did 854,000 copies. Yeah. In the U.S. That's just damn good. That's really damn good, yeah. And Metroid, as we might uh, consider it, not necessarily a top-tier AAA Nintendo title in the vein of a... Uh, a Mario or a, uh, a a Legend of Zelda franchise. Well, I, I think in terms of like a gamer demographic, it is. But for the more casual people, like who are maybe just you know people who aren't super crazy into video games, they're not going to know Metroid. No, they're going to know Mario. They're, they might know Zelda. They might like Don- well, they'll know Donkey Kong, Mario yeah, Kart, exactly. Like so, but Metroid isn't necessarily one of those franchises, which is why this is, I don't want to say surprising, but kind of surprising. I I will file it under the heading of surprising. Yeah. Uh, that uh, 854,000 units sold made it the third best-selling uh, game for the month of October, which is still damn impressive. Uh, and uh, those numbers coming by way of Nintendo of America President Doug Bowser when he was talking to The Verge about the current state of the Switch. Uh, during that interview with The Verge, he also mentioned that the Switch OLED model sold 314,000 units during the month of October in the U.S. alone. So, again, not an entire full sales month as the OLED model of Switch also came out on the 8th of October. So uh, some impressive sales figures for Nintendo and the Switch. And I think one of the big factors that has helped the Switch kind of stay at the top, if not near the very top of sales figures, is the fact that even in the face of uh, new consoles being released, new, much more powerful consoles like the Xbox Series X and also the PlayStation 5, is those new systems have faced... Supply problems. Yes, major, major chip shortages. From the start. Yes. I mean, there's still, like, if you look for a PlayStation 5, for example, on sale at any storefront, you're either still paying the full, unaltered, undropped original price, like, you're still paying, like, $900 for a new system, or it'll be sold out. Or you're only going to get a scalper price of like fifteen hundred dollars for it, mm-hmm. fifteen hundred plus dollars for it. So that certainly can't be helping the PlayStation and Xbox numbers if that's what you're getting. No, certainly not. And Sony recently, further to those uh, global supply ca- supply chain constraints, easy for me to say, uh, announced that they would be cutting production of the PlayStation Five by a little bit just because they can't get the parts because of chip shortages. Uh, A report released by Bloomberg News, uh, who cited sources familiar with Sony's operations, uh, they said that Sony uh, was originally targeting to uh, produce more than 16 million PS5 units 
in the year ending of March 2022, but that figure has now been cut down to 15 million PS5s produced between now and the end of March of next year. So that's a drawdown of 1 million units. Still, it's only 1 million, but that's still kind of a lot in the global supply chain face of things. Uh, according to Sony's chief financial officer, Hiroki Totoki, uh, he recently told investors that uh, logistical issues and parts shortages have grown more severe and that PS5 sales uh, in the quarter ending September 21 were weaker than expected. And since July, sales of the console have fallen behind the pace that uh, was set by the PS4, largely due to the fact that there's supply issues. Yeah, the global chip shortage. And well, let's just be clear, though. It's not, like, as we said, it's not just Sony facing these issues and having to cause delays and or outright rejiggings of their entire production projections, Valve has also faced a major issue as well with the Steam Deck. Uh, they have delayed the Steam Deck into the next year of 2022, again, due to material shortages. Um, yeah, so if, if you're not aware of what the Steam Deck is, it's the portable gaming PC that's basically supposed to be their... Their Switch? Their Switch, like their their knock at the Nintendo Switch, or their attempt to recapture that lightning in the bottle. Um, yeah, so their initial plans were that uh, they wanted to have it, or at least some of the models, out by the end of, the, of this year, in time for the holiday season, in mm-hmm. time for Christmas and stuff. But that's not going to be the case. Now... Uh, now the Steam Decks are going to start making their way to customers by February of 2022. So, yeah, just just as a reminder, too, there's not just one model of Steam Deck. There was multiple models of Steam Deck. Like, there were different like two levels. two or three, I think. Yeah. Uh, not entirely sure. I, I don't exactly remember the impact of, like, what each one's differences were and stuff, but, yeah. I recall with the, the highest-end tier of uh, Valve uh, Steam Deck, you know, had all the bells and whistles, you know, more high-end visuals and whatnot, but also included uh, a nice tote bag as well that you got for subscribing at that tier. Yes, exactly. But, like PBS. Yeah, just like PBS, exactly. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, you know, basically they released almost the same type of, like, release, press release as PlayStation, as Sony did, you know, their their quote here from, you know, their FAQ page on the Steam Deck website, they're saying, uh, you know, material shortages and delays meant that components weren't making it to our manufacturing facilities on time, uh, missing parts along with logistical challenges means delayed Steam Decks, so we needed to push out shipping by two months to February. Um, Valve does assure everyone that it's aiming to start sending out their order invitations by February 2022, and will make every effort to convert all reservations to orders, but they're not able to guarantee the availability. Whatever that means. Basically, it sounds like a big red flag of buyer beware. At the same time, it's taking uh, place at a time when everyone is having parts problems. Exactly. Uh, so, so it is a bit believable. But yeah, everyone is kind of looking for the same parts at the same time, and no one can get them. Yeah. But yeah, the same part, or at least, yeah, similar parts too. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's not just the big people that are being affected either as well. I mean, the smaller companies as well, like like Panic, for example, is another one, just to kind of round out all these bad delay news Mm -hmm. that have been coming out. Panic, with their play date, you know, I... 
I pre-ordered one as well. You know, I'm you're looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm apparently in group three of five that have pre-ordered uh, a play date. Um, but yeah, they were saying that uh, they had to actually delay the launch or the pushing out and or you know shipping out their first groups play dates to the people who ordered them by uh to early 2022 instead of late 2021 as well due to an unforeseen surprise battery issue uh that were found in the first 5000 finished units apparently like they were just saying they weren't holding a charge properly and it was super disappointing and you know rather than having them released and then having people basically just be immediately disappointed they made like the kind of ballsy executive decision to just basically put a stop source a new battery that would fit, you know, in the same type of way and whatever else that make basically some emergency quick adjustments to their board, essentially. And then, yeah. And then just say, actually, we're just going to take the time to make sure it throw, it goes out and is what we and you are expecting. So they had the bank of 5,000 finished units ready to go. They discovered these issues now these finished units have to be sent back to the manufacturing facilities in Malaysia from California. Yeah. So that's going to take a while. It's going to take a while for them to be repaired. That's 5,000 units. It's uh, not going to be quickly. And it's a very specific task that has to be done on these units that isn't already set up and automated. And there's a an assembly line for. So it is going to take more time for that. Uh how did Panic phrase it to uh, customers who did pre-order and uh, had to send out that email? Uh, one of the lines in there that they say in the email, I guess talking about the delay and having to send things back, how did that feel? Not great. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, they go on to say in their email to uh, backers and those who have pre-ordered the system, uh, quote, we can't get any more of Playdate's current CPU for, you're not going to believe this, two years like 730 days. Maybe you've heard about this global chip shortage everyone's talking about. We're here to say it's very real. COVID-19 caused an ever-cascading set of worldwide supply chain failures that are leading to many, many electronic parts simply being gone. End quote. So that's when they had to kind of rejig their circuit board inside, as you mentioned, and found a part that, for unexplained reasons is not as uh, in demand as uh, the part they were originally going to use. Yeah, but will still apparently still um, service all of their um, CPU and performance requirements. So hopefully they're able to figure that out. But they did say the impact that this new rejigging will have is that basically if you've... (laughs) They basically had to make a hard cutoff for the first 50,000 units. 50,000 is the number that they have for this... Original CPU, if you're making an order that's after 50,000, you're basically being delayed into 2023 at least. Mm -hmm. So that's a buyer beware. Yeah, which is really unfortunate because the uh, play date has already been delayed a number of times. Yeah. Like it's target first, not first, but uh, at the start of this story, its initial targeted release date was late 2021, so I think December of this year is when they were looking at, and even that was a delayed release date. So, I don't want to say the play date is becoming vaporware, but it's concerning, but again, it's happening at a time when there's 
whole lot of other uh, supply chain issues happening, so it's kind of understandable that this would happen. So if you were in groups one and two and you got in on the first 10,000 pre-orders, now you're looking at an early 2020, 2022 release. If you were in groups three and four, Dennis said he's in group three, uh, so you're still looking at a 2022 release, although that's kind of being initially targeted as second half. Uh, group five is still 2022, but apparently later second half, yeah. so later on in the year. Um, and at this point, if you're not in those first 50,000, as you said, 2023, so just wait. <laughs> wait and see how this all plays itself out would be my recommendation. Yeah. And so, so yeah, you're going to have to wait longer for your play date. Yeah. Well, you had to wait this long anyway. Yeah, that was kind of what I figured. Well, <laughs> you know, especially in these covid times, I kind of figured, well, they're, they're optimistically saying early 2022. I'm going to just kind of like brace my, I, I was already kind of expecting a bit of a delay. So I, you know, I was already braced for like, you know, an up to six month kind of thing anyway, so it's fine. As long as they're not saying, oh, well, actually, uh, we have to send them all back and now we're not getting these shipped out for another two years or something. Like that would be like, oh, come on, really? Uh, yeah, actually the, the government of our, uh, federal government of our manufacturing country actually fell and it's now a military regime. And so they're demanding, uh, basically we bribe them to release our holdings. So <laughs> what are we to do? Yeah, it's like, well, you're supposed to give me my money back then, and I'm never dealing with you again. Good God. <laughs> but that's not the case, thankfully. No, thankfully not. So, uh, but yeah, so supply chain issues, they're a real thing. It's, uh, causing chaos and problems everywhere. Uh, in the electronics world, in the consumer goods world, um, you name it. It's, uh, just not a good time to be wanting to buy stuff. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's not 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 a great. I mean, on the one hand, it's a great time to be a tech company, but on the other hand, it's not a great time to be a tech company that wants to put hardware out because you will not be able to, you know, like service your demand for your product if you have demand for a product that you've put out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's good to be a software company. Yes, like a coding software type type company. That's it with no hard assets. Exactly. Any hard assets? That's when you run into trouble. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> as everyone is steadily finding out. So, so yeah, I'm sure uh, as we go forward, there's going to be just more stories of uh, uh, companies in the gaming world uh, facing supply chain issues, having to push back release dates uh, for items, devices, whatever the case might be, and we will uh, keep you apprised of those as they unfold in the days and weeks ahead. But uh, speaking of time and the days and weeks ahead, let's uh, take some time now to look at the days and weeks past, or more specifically, the years past, as we now get into our Blast from the Past, the segment of the show where we take some time to talk about things celebrating milestone anniversaries that we want to talk about and we think bear talking about. It could be anything from video games to movies, TV shows to musical albums, back when those were a thing people purchased. Instead of just streaming single songs through whatever service provider, uh, no, you could buy whole albums. They, they came on a, a circular disc that you, uh, took with you. It was in a very kind of thicker plastic, uh, case. Uh, there was artwork associated with it. Uh, and even if you looked on the inside, there'd be lyrics, uh, printed out for each song that you'd hear on the album as well. Yeah, usually. Uh, sometimes even got two CDs in the, uh, case for the same album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
it was a wild time to be alive. <laughs> yes. But none of those are in the Blast from the Past this week. In fact, we have four video game related items, uh, three of which actually came out around the same time, uh, but one of which stands alone, and I think you're going to want to start with this one. So uh, uh, sh- I'll just ask, should we start with the younger of uh, the options here? Yeah, we can start with the younger of the options. All right, and then we'll work backwards in time. Yeah. The younger of the options takes us to November 11th, 2011, or 1111. 2011. Yeah, 111111 was the promotional material that they put out for uh, this game when it was originally being released. It was originally released on the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, and PC, but in the intervening years has come out for literally everything short of a graphing calculator. Yeah, which I'm sure someone, someone has, I've also seen, <laughs> I've seen, you know, people getting it running on various things, the most ridiculous being a birth control, not birth control, um, like a pregnancy test. Pregnancy test. They, they had the intro scene running. I, they, the game itself wasn't running on the pregnancy mm-hmm. test, I'm sure. They were probably just hooking the pregnancy test display up to some computer that was running it, but it was the funniest version was seeing the intro of this game on it. But yeah, if if you're not sure, the game is Skyrim. Yes. Which is the fifth entry in the Elder Scrolls franchise. And it has, it, it runs on everything. You can find it uh, for everything now. It is, I think, second only to Doom in the internet asking the question, hey, can this run blah? Yeah. Because it's, it's been ported for literally everything. Yeah. The, the fifth and so far final title in the Elder Scrolls franchise, if you don't count Elder Scrolls Online or Elder Scrolls Blades on the phone or whatever, which those are offshoot, you know, off to the side spinoffs anyway, so they're really, they're not part of the mainline franchise, so this was the last entry in the mainline franchise. It's been ten years. And now there's talk there might be uh, an Elder Scrolls Six. There, there was uh, a little bit shown off uh, a couple of years. Uh, was it two years ago now? At uh, the Bethesda <laughs> showcase at E3, that <laughs> for some reason, even though there was nothing actually to show, yes, yeah, it was just the landscape, you know, the terrain where uh, it's believed the game will take place. Yeah. Or we don't even know if that landscape or terrain was actually going to be in the game either, because it was literally just a sizzle reel of some pre-rendered 3D mountains. That was all it was. Yep, and some houses in a little, you know, community, you know, at the foot of the mountains and whatnot. But that was it. And then just the lo- the the title card came up, Elder Scrolls Six, and we don't even know. Well, it, it clearly wasn't the official word mark for whatever this game is going to be. They didn't actually have. You know, the, the actual, not, not subtitle or whatever, whatever you'd want to call it, because every Elder Scrolls game has a, you know, it's like the Elder Scrolls 1, colon, something. The Elder Scrolls 2, colon, something else. Like, you know, there's Daggerfell, there's Morrowind, um, Morrowind there's Oblivion, there was Skyrim, there was Arena, which was the first one. But, you know, we, there's no indication, like, is it going to be like, Black Marsh? Is it going to be elsewhere? Where, like, where is this game going to take place? I have no idea. Is that what the logo is actually going to look like? It's not really in line with all the other Elder Scrolls logos. It was just literally like some font that they put up, like Elder Scrolls Six. Like, oh, it looked like the kind of font. It looked like what happened was they tried rendering the uh, or crafting that image in like Photoshop or something, but on a machine that did not have the standard Elder Scrolls font pre-installed, and that was the default substitute font. Yeah, it was like some like 
you know, serif family font or something that they just made look gold, and they're like, here you go! Woo! It's like, Woo! That's not, wait a minute, that's not the Elder Scrolls logo. I met, I met the deadline. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. I'm taking lunch. Yeah, we're... Run away, boys! <laughs> <laughs> so that's Elder Scrolls Six, uh, not out yet, but Elder Scrolls Five is ten years old. Uh, I think this is one of the games I've heard you talk about, and perhaps uh, heard you uh, just describe playing the most in the past ten years. There's this, there's Witcher Three, and probably some Final Fantasies along the way. Yeah, this game. I handily put the most time into this game out of any other game of the last decade. Handily. And I think that's also maybe the case for a lot of my other friends who are, you know, into this type of game as well. It was just very easy to, like, for all of their faults these games have, like, you know, you still have to kind of, like, take into account, it's still a very technically impressive achievement to put out a game with a world this big and to not have even more problems in terms of, you know, like things rendering incorrectly or having some bugs here and there are weird things or characters just kind of spawning in places where they might not necessarily need to be or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in terms of experiences, like it's a rich world that was delivered on the PS3 and Xbox 360. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, there, when it first came out, there were a couple of like little issues, like particularly with save size and like, you know, the, the the longer you play, the bigger your save file becomes, the slower the game actually renders and things like that. They they eventually solved it all, but like, you know, that's like these iterative problems that happen with any other of these big games, like especially at that time it was kind of unknown territory for a game to be this big with this much stuff in it. Like how will how will saves be like how will you actually save the state of an entire world this big and have it like perform correctly, like you could literally take an apple off a table, put it somewhere in a different house, and they're saving that. Like, I don't think people appreciate how technically demanding that type of, um, that level of detail is in terms of an entire world. Mm-hmm. Like, it's crazy. Uh, absolutely crazy. The, the, also crazy to me was the amount of dialogue and characters you could interact with. Yeah, like literally thousands of characters. And everyone said something. Yeah. Even if it was just some nonsense, like, you know, all the guards would have, like, their their 30 lines that they would cycle through or whatever, but they were all recorded by four or five different people, so it didn't necessarily sound like it was just one person's voice throughout the entire game, like Oblivion kind of did. Mm-hmm. So, like, Skyrim had a wider array of cast members and stuff, and yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, if you've never played Skyrim at this point, and you like open world RPGs, you have, you're doing yourself a bit of a disservice. Like, you should go play it. There's, it's very easy to get. No matter what console or system you have and are playing games on. Yeah, it's, it's very easy. Like, <laughs> like it's the easiest time in all of history to play Skyrim. Now's your chance. Go ahead and do it. Uh, and I think even to honor the fact that it's the 10th anniversary, uh, I think Bethesda has released the, literal 10th anniversary edition. Yeah. Where it's got all the DLC inside, uh, whatever other upgraded visuals, audio cues, uh, all the standard bells and whistles, blah, 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 available on PC and whatever other digital storefront uh, you can find it on. But uh, the main thrust is you can find it. You can find it everywhere. Even Switch. 
even the Switch has Skyrim. Yeah, and from what I recall, even on Switch, there's a special chest somewhere that lets you open it up, and you have armor that looks like Link's armor. All right, then. Which, you know... Neat. I'm not going to buy it. I've already bought the game on three different consoles. I don't need to do four or five or whatever. But, uh, yeah. So, ten years on, and uh, you'd probably still dive right back into it, couldn't you? I think I probably could. Do you have anything left to do? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's still more to do. I mean, like, there's... Like, I I think I've done most of the things, but there's a couple of storylines that I wasn't able to properly get to resolve, so I don't know. Or, like, I didn't resolve things, like, I might have played supporting one faction in a certain way and didn't support a different faction, like, you know, I'm curious how it might go if I support a different faction kind of idea. But, you know, that's the the things with these, like, massive games that take, like, hundreds of hours away from your life. It's like, how many hours is enough? (laughs) It just, you know, I, I kind of have to also get to a point with these games where it's like, I think I need to step away from it for a while. Anyway, it's been a Good few years since I have. I might start a new game up, but yeah. Who knows how how much longer before Elder Scrolls 6 comes out, so maybe there will be a time to you know dip back into Skyrim one more time. Who knows? Uh, true enough. So I don't think you're the only one who has uh, lost a whole lot of hours, hundreds if not thousands of hours to Skyrim. Uh, it is a rich world that you can go uh, investigate, uh, play around in. It is 10 years old, but let's now go backwards even further in time and... Uh, we will discuss two items, or I guess technically three items, that uh, came out in very close succession. Uh, one is a, an item from Sony, one or two are items from Microsoft, and I think we'll start with the uh, Sony one first. Yeah. Uh, this is a game that was released, uh, a highly anticipated game, hotly anticipated game that was released on November 13th, 2001. This is a game that was released for the PlayStation 2. It is a sequel to a very well-received uh, game that did well critically and commercially, uh, done by someone who was uh, maybe still at the start of making a name for themselves. But this title certainly helped uh, make clear what their style is. The game, game I'm talking about is Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty. For the PlayStation 2. Yeah, and the person you're talking about with the very distinctive style is a is a crazy man named Hideo Kojima. Yes, at the time, 20 years ago, we did not know he was a crazy man, but now we know for sure he's a crazy man. Yeah. He's I confirmed mean, it. Yeah, he's confirmed it in many ways. Like, yeah, yeah, we we disparagingly say crazy, but, like, I don't think either one of us can deny that he definitely is a visionary. Yes. Like, he's one of those people who, like... Doesn't go halfway with anything. Like he's, he's kind of like a, kind of like a Guillermo del Toro or like a, you know, someone who has a great vision for everything they do. Like maybe like a David Lynch or something like that. Like not for everyone, but for the people that he's for, it's like, oh yeah, I'm all in. And very committed to seeing through and producing the art they see in their head. Exactly. Like to the T, like to an, a wildly unnecessary degree. Oh yeah. So like, certainly. So it wasn't quite there with this game. This is the game that sort of established Hideo Kojima. Yeah. The first Metal Gear Solid started to establish him as a person, as a game maker who maybe saw games as a medium that can actually provide more than just basically 
beat a bunch of levels, experience a story passively, and the story's a straightforward point A to point Z, and you're done. That, like, Metal Gear Solid started to kind of throw weird wrenches in there where you're like, it's generally supposed to be a tactical espionage game, but for some reason, one of the bosses is like a mystic shaman mm-hmm. who has like mystical powers that you have to try to overcome using conventional weapons. And that type of idea, as well as like, you know, people with weird, like supernatural connections to things kind of started to spiral into existential craziness in the second Metal Gear Solid game where it actually got, you know, really meta with like politics and everything to that degree where it's like, it really became a big social commentary on like, who are the powers that be, what are their, you know, role in society and what happens, you know, why we need them, what happens if we don't need them. It it was basically just like a big, like, didn't really resolve any questions, but it, it raised a whole bunch of extra questions and kind of, in a way, tried to make people think a lot more philosophically about everything. Uh, certainly, and I, I think a lot of that, I mean, you get, you get pieces of that as you play through the game, but once you get to the ending and you've beat the game and your end cinematic is, I mean, up to that point in my gaming experience was nothing like I'd ever seen or experienced before in a game. There, there was no, you save the day, congratulations, the end, it's, no, no, we're gonna ask some, some really deep questions here. Yeah, we're going to really challenge you to think about these things at the end of this game after the journey you just had. Yeah. Like, it's a very David Lynch ending. Yeah, like, a lot of the themes that they get into, you know, just as Wikipedia just kind of says at a very high level, you know, themes such as the information age, memetics, social engineering, political conspiracies, censorship, artificial intelligence, existentialism, postmodernism, virtual reality. It also sort of, like... Way before it became relevant in society, it also kind of started to bring the concerns up, and we're talking 2001 here, the concerns up of post-truth politics, fake news, alternative facts, and echo chambers. So, like, it really started to kind of, like, make people question these types of issues, or it acted sort of, like, as a herald for, like, "Mm, this might become a real problem based on all of this other stuff we've talked about here. You know, with the artificial intelligence and, you know, uh, a lot of, like, social engineering and memetics and information age type stuff. And we're talking 2001, which is, you know, why I'm kind of saying, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think Kojima is a bit of a visionary. Because, like, a lot of the stuff he was warning against in this game has started to come true now in the last five years. Mm-hmm. So maybe it was a bit bit ahead of its time in terms of what it was kind of heralding. And, and of course, at the time when, when these ideas are being presented, they seemed off the goddamn wall. Yeah, it's like, what are you talking about? Like, well, artificial intelligence is going to be creating all these weird fake conversations between people that are going to cause, like, political powers to become uneasy? Oh, actually, yeah. Because it was at the time, it seemed inconceivable that technology would progress so far, and, you know, but it has. (laughs) Which is like, oh, huh. 
And, like, there, Kojima made a lot of bold choices to actually inject that into a big AAA title, which this was for Sony and the PlayStation 2. Like, this was meant to be a console mover based on the success of Metal Gear Solid 1 on the first PlayStation uh, console. But I think Kojima's bold choices started at basically at the very beginning by not having Solid Snake return as your main character. Well, he it, it's not just even that he didn't return. He returned, and then you got to play as Solid Snake for a bit, but then all of a sudden... He basically was like, okay, he hands off the baton to a different person and goes, bye, <laughs> until the end of the game. Spoiler alert, if you never played the game, you play 70% of the game as a different person. Yeah, the character of Raiden, yes. uh, a young rookie agent, and this is one of uh, one of his first cases uh, that he's assigned to, Yeah, is... Uh, I think was it you know getting onto and uh, uh, resolving like the hostage situation on an oil platform. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, but like in doing so, uncovers basically a big crazy government conspiracy while learning a bunch of insane things about himself as like part of like this big political problem that happened when he was a child and all this other stuff. It's it's a really good game, I think. Maybe graphically, it, you know, it, it's still, like, there have been re-releases that have happened over the years, but, you know, it's still a game from 2001, so take that with a grain of salt graphically, but story-wise, it's still absolutely worth playing. And I think uh, uh, now being able to go back and look at and play Sons of Liberty might be more appropriate and, and fitting, and you can, un- I, you, we, the collective gaming public, could understand and appreciate it better now than we could 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and we can, uh, we understand ex- and accept that video games can be mediums for political conversations, social conversations. And big artistic expressions. Uh, at that point... It was really foreign to have those sorts of concepts be done in a video game, which was just for fun. You yeah. played for fun and uh, distraction from your day-to-day life. Yeah, like, it, it really got into a lot of, like, postmodern territory that would really just kind of, even if it was a major movie that came out, people would kind of scoff at and go, oh, look at this artsy-fartsy nonsense, and, you know, really might not get it or might really misinterpret the message or like really miss the meaning behind it. So for it to come out as a triple A game at the time, like, you know, I think like the, the, the target demographic of video games would have been people who were teenagers really. Yeah. I, I recall playing it as a teenager, but as you know, being someone who was, you know, 17, 18 years old when I was playing it, I could not understand or appreciate what was going on. No, I mean, I I tried to wrap my head around it. All I knew is that it was, like, really, like, <laughs> heavy subject matter for oh, yeah. for me. Like, it's like, you're talking about the Cold War and, like, history with, like, NATO and stuff like that. Like, I don't fully understand what's going on here. I'm going to need some time to digest this or look into, like, other stuff you're talking about. Like, what the hell's going yeah. on? I'm going to need to call my dad into the room and help him digest this with me. Yeah. Uh, because Especially the end cinematic. Yeah. Where it's Raiden having a conversation with... He's not entirely sure who it is, but then it turns out he's talking to someone who apparently has been dead for hundreds of years. 
or at least a hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. Over his codex. So yeah, that's a thing. Um, which just blows your freaking mind. All that being said, go back and revisit Sons of Liberty. There are various ways and means to do it in this day and age. Uh, there's been HD re-releases. I'm sure it's available on plenty of digital storefronts. Go back and revisit it here now in the year of 2021. Things might make more sense. A hell of a lot more sense than they did seeing them presented for the first time in 2001. When we were still fairly bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Yeah. <laughs> Relatively. Yeah, relatively bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, you know, not so uh, uh, cold to the world. Uh, you know, for us back then, at the time of this game's release, 9-11 had just happened two months prior. Yeah, so it was pretty fresh still. So, you know, we weren't entirely jaded to the world as uh, perhaps uh, has happened over the, over the intervening years. So, Actually, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> but also kind of... I don't want to say conversely, but like, maybe not as, I also don't want to say maybe not as culturally important, but like, in a different offshoot of, you know, cultural importance, very interestingly enough, within the same few days, a couple of other major things were released. And uh, I don't know which one you want to talk about first. Well, we'll have to talk about the system first, because yeah. uh, there's no point, uh, there's no game without any system, uh, but on November 15th, 2001, that was the day that Microsoft released their very first console called the Xbox. Yeah. Which Perhaps sound, you've heard of it. Which sounds very quaint and weird to say, but yeah, we remember the release of the Xbox. Yeah. yeah. It's not as though the Xbox has been around since, you know, the dawn of time. It had to have a start point. Similarly, how the Sony PlayStation had to have a start point. There wasn't a PlayStation forever and ever since, you know, generations before us. Yeah. And I do remember when the Xbox came out, it felt a little weird and unnecessary. It did, didn't it? Because Microsoft at that time was kind of like... Microsoft was in society where I would say Facebook and Google are now. Like, you don't really think of Microsoft as like one of these massive companies anymore, even though they still are, and they always have been. Oh, yeah. But they were like ubiquitous. If you had a computer and you would... You know, turn it on. One of the first things you would see is the Microsoft logo surrounded by Microsoft Windows. Mm -hmm. Like you would see the word Microsoft with Windows, whatever was on it for a long time, like probably a good 10 years of just like any home computer that was there. Like, you know, Macs were around, but they were more for, you know, like niche, more people making, you know, like more creative types, editing video, recording audio whatever, but like the everyman would have their windows PC and it would likely be a big gray tower and whatever else. And you know, or or even a flat platform at that point too, where your CRT monitor could sit on top. Yeah, exactly. But like what you would see is some form of Microsoft logo pop up right before windows would load. And then Microsoft, you know, it was like it became, even though Microsoft wasn't the people who made the computer, Microsoft basically was the the company that facilitated you using a computer, essentially. Like, it might as well have been you didn't have a computer if Microsoft wasn't around. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's how it probably was associated with a lot of, you know, our young kid brains at the time. It's like, oh, well, yeah, well, that's a Microsoft computer. Even though it was, it could have been a home-built thing, could have been an IBM, 
could have been compact, you know, compact, whatever at the time, but it was running Microsoft software and, you know, you were, you were browsing the internet using Microsoft Internet Explorer. You were writing Word documents with Microsoft Word or using Microsoft Office or Microsoft Works. You were checking your email with Microsoft Outlook. Like there was like, so you were researching stuff for, uh, for your homework in Microsoft Encarta. Yeah, exactly. Using programs. Yeah. Because killing time playing Microsoft Solitaire or Microsoft Minesweeper. Yeah. Like, so it was a very doing shit in MS Paint. Yeah. Or Microsoft, Microsoft Paint. Paint. So Microsoft was not an unknown company. Microsoft was a huge company. But at the time, it was like there was already Nintendo. Sega was sort of on its way out, but it was still around. Sony had just come out with the PlayStation a couple of years earlier. So the gaming landscape was already sort of, it felt like it was established. And then Microsoft threw their hat in the ring. And then I think at the time, everyone thought, well, what does Microsoft need to do that for? They're already huge. Mm-hmm. They're already like a multi-billion dollar company. Like, they're already on everyone's computers. Like, what are they hoping to gain from this video game thing? Like, and I think, actually, they were very unprofitable for quite some time with the Xbox. Like, I think they were just trying to establish themselves, and by establishing themselves... They were just hemorrhaging money for quite some time. Uh, certainly. But they, being a big enough company, could afford to hemorrhage money at that point. Uh, they had, you know, the vast resources. Uh, I mean, they were a monopoly. They were a monopoly through the 90s. Yeah. They, they were... <laughs> they literally were judged as being a monopoly yeah, by the courts. Yeah. It was specifically the pack in... Um, thing of Microsoft Internet Explorer was viewed as an antitrust thing from the Netscape Corporation who was running their own web browser that didn't find it fair that you only, that people would start to associate the internet with Microsoft Internet Explorer. Like this was the landscape of back then. So like for this company to then basically be broken up as an antitrust, in an antitrust fashion, for them to like, you know, start doing anything else, it would just kind of, there was always that air of like unease that people would have of like, what's Microsoft doing now? Xbox, what's, what's this? And at the same time, Microsoft was dominant, predominantly a software company. They didn't really delve into hardware. No. So this was really their first big commercial, uh, hardware venture and they're doing it as a gaming system. Well, what the hell are they doing all this for? But I guess at the time they saw the the rising popularity of PCs and personal computers being used for video game devices and thought, hey, how can we leverage that into our a system of our very own? Conversations were had, drafts were drawn up, yada yada yada. Development time went into it, and lo and behold, on November fifteenth, two thousand one, the Xbox was released, and it was an unwieldy looking device. Like, yeah. both the console itself and the controller. Yep. I distinctly recall being at an ele- electronics boutique location, playing the demo kiosk of an Xbox, and trying to wrap my hands around the controller and just thinking, this is not comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I had, uh I remember being at someone's house when, like, I guess they had just got an Xbox, and it was still... In that new phase, like maybe it was like one or two years old at that point, and or like within the year old, and I picked up the the controller and thought, "This is insane." Mm-hmm. Like it's not that there was a lot of buttons on it, but it just felt like 
that early 2000s, late 90s time was a very strange time for video game controller and mechanical design in general because it was like there were no standards yet. Like the closest thing we had to a standard would have been the Super Nintendo controller, which the PlayStation was basically just an extended offshoot of. So mm-hmm. like that was it. But I could see companies wanting to do something different so as to like differentiate themselves from the other companies. But you get to a point when it's just like, you have to kind of stop and go, wait, is this insane? Because the Xbox controller was huge. Like it was like, like I want to say, like I might be exaggerating this, but I want to say it was like a 10 inch disc in diameter almost, or an eight to 10 inch disc in diameter. And it was probably like with handles with handles. And it was like two to three, well, maybe four or five inches thick. Like, it was huge. Like, it was hard to get your hands around. You could use it as a weapon. If if you were someone who had uh, siblings at the time, if you were older, they were older, or whatever the case might be, that's something that could be used as a weapon in a fight with a sibling, and you're doing some damage to your sibling. Yeah. Uh, but not only that, it had, like, that... The controller had that big green circle in the middle, because black and green was the established uh, brand identity for the Xbox, which, I guess... Every system has to have its own unique color scheme. Okay, fine. Uh, and at that time, there was a lot of grays going on. The PlayStation... Well, the, the original PlayStation was gray. The PS2 was black. or black and blue. Uh, the GameCube was around that same time, and Nintendo went in the purple direction with the handle. So that was a unique aesthetic. So Microsoft settled on green and black as the design aesthetic. But it had that big circular disc right in the middle of the uh, controller itself, which was just always a weird plastic, and any time I was holding it, I'd always just take my index finger fingernail and just start scratching at it, because it's that weird soft plastic, but not too soft plastic. Yeah. And not only that, it had multiple control inputs, like two joysticks, I think there was a D-pad, but then on the right side felt like it had too many buttons. Like it had your A, B, X, Y, traditional four input buttons, but then it had like a silver button and a black button on the side as well. And yeah. I never understood what those buttons were for. Never experienced a use for them in my time as playing a demo kiosk or anything of that nature. But they were there, and Sony was... Or not Sony, but Microsoft was trying to be different. Yeah. I mean, over the years, there have been some standards established, and we are long away from the, uh you know... That controller, which I believe was, I don't know if it was the official name, but the code name, at least for the controller, was Duke. Yes. And then, you know, they they did quickly revise it to the Model S controller, whatever it was, the, the, the next revision, which was smaller. But, yeah, if you don't believe me, look up the Duke controller. It was huge. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. And it just looked unwieldy and unsettling. So, uh, and because of that experience, and I believe because co- of cost as well, uh, and perhaps a general unease around, you know, what is this thing? It's a brand new system from a new company that has no established history. I never delved into the world of the Xbox in that first generation. I had my GameCube and was quite content with it, playing Mario Sunshine, uh, uh, Wind Waker, things of that nature. Yeah. So, uh, but... I mean, the size of it as well was, the size of the console itself was attributable to the fact that they used PC parts inside the system. Yeah, like, at the end of the day, the first generation Xbox was just a PC that was in a case that could fit 
in the same space that a VCR or whatever could fit in because we're still in that time mm-hmm. when like, you know, DVD controller or DVD players were still relatively new and VCRs were established and, you know, it was, it was okay for your console to be a big box that goes under the TV. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even though the Xbox was particularly big box, like it was like, you know, like 14 by 12 inches or something like, and like six or seven inches high, like big. Like, if you threw it at someone, you'd do some real damage. Like, it could, yeah. If you threw it at a wall, the wall's getting damaged. And your machine, too. Yeah, I mean, your machine, too. But, yeah, like, it, it's, it had some weight to it. Sure did. It had heft. But because of the use of PC parts, it actually was a favorite of the modding community. Yep. Exactly. Like, there was a small subsect of people who took to the Microsoft Xbox in those early days. Now, it didn't sell like hotcakes, but it was enough to maybe show to the, the tall foreheads and the higher-ups at Microsoft that there's there's a market here, that there's yeah. something to be said. And then they innovated, iterated, and later on we got the – a couple, couple of years later we got the Xbox 360 and then the Xbox One and now the Xbox Series X. Uh, so, you know, we're now on Microsoft's fourth generation of home console – Yep. All because of the first gen big black and green box that was the, uh, Microsoft Xbox, which, let's be clear, didn't really have a great stable of games to, to play. No. When you think back to that time, there's not really a lot of games that stand out or are considered memorable, but there is one. Yes, which, uh. Was a launch title. Yeah, it's a launch title and therefore it is our fourth it's our third game ludicrous lead off, but like, you know, technically fourth thing because the Xbox in and of itself, we're not ludicrous lead off. Blast, Blast from, from the past. past. Sorry, I had a massive brain fart. Um, but yeah, like the Xbox itself was released in North America on November 15th, 2001, before everywhere else in the world because it's truly an American thing. Um, unlike, you know, most other video game stuff that comes from Japan and makes its way west afterwards, this was west first and then made its way east afterwards. But yeah, because the Xbox was released on November 15th of 2001, so too was the very first game in the Halo franchise. So that would be Halo Combat Evolved that launched alongside the original Xbox on November 15th, 2001. And uh, surprisingly, for a brand new system with uh, really no established track record, had a pretty killer app right off the hop. And something that's actually gone on to be one of the most successful franchises for Microsoft, yeah. if not the successful franchise. And also, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, a franchise that sort of changed fundamentally how people played games. Because before Halo, and, you know, gaming in general, people really didn't do the online multiplayer deathmatch style thing as much in, you know, the, the broader, you know, gaming sphere, like there were land parties and there were like, you know, doom parties and whatever else people would have, but it wasn't really a common thing for people to just exclusively play games like that with people online. Mm -hmm. And Halo started to change that because yeah, there was a, there was a, uh, a like campaign mode in the game, but the, the mode that people ended up being drawn to the most was the multiplayer mode and the matchmaking and all that stuff. And even if it was just playing with your friends primarily, 
that's the way that I know a lot of, like most of the people that I know that were really into Halo, that's how they preferred to play Halo. Now, out of the box, you couldn't necessarily do online, but there were ways around. I mean, uh, there were people who could be skilled enough with the Xbox uh, and well, the, the hardware Xbox, and software. It did have a modem built in. It so, did have a modem, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like, if you were online, which, you know, it wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now, but it was starting to be. It was starting to be. I mean, the uh, the GameCube even had a port underneath to accept a modem. Yeah. And I think even in the back of the PlayStation 2, there was a port for an Ethernet. The PlayStation 2 actually did have an adapter that you need to buy ah. to to get Ethernet. So I think the interesting thing about the Xbox is that it had the Internet stuff built right in, mm-hmm. which made it, you know, I don't want to say better or anything, but it was like that one push forward for Internet play that the other consoles didn't have built in. Like, they supported it, but it was through dongles and adapters and things you had to plug onto the console Mm -hmm. versus just, it's right in the console. Because at the end of the day, the console itself was a computer, Mm -hmm. and computers had modems in them, so, you know, and and LAN adapters and whatever else. So, it did support that out of the box, in the box, as it were. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so it was sort of like... And the Xbox Live ecosystem, I think, was one of the first actual online online ecosystems. So it it really, it it, with Halo being like a launch title that supported online multiplayer out of the box and was really encouraging people to do that right off the hop, it did kind of signal a massive shift in how people would play games. And if I recall, in the early days of Xbox Live, it was almost exclusively just a, a means of playing online with other people. Yes, like there was no, not really a storefront or anything yet, and it was just really a means of, yeah, matchmaking for your games. And I don't, I don't even know if there's voice chat or anything yet, but yeah. Not impossible. I recall the, the Xbox controllers had uh, ports at the very top of it. Like where you could slot in something like some sort of card or whatever else. So there may have been headset support, but or or at the very least, like I do know that they had keyboards you could plug in as That's well right for too. like basically rudimentary text messaging, essentially yeah, qwerty typing. Yeah, but uh yeah, so that's that's my recollection of Halo, and it also really kind of like helped to popularize alongside with the early Call of Duty games and things like that, the first person shooter genre really as like a viable way of playing online video games with friends. Yes. Uh on a home console. Yes, exactly. Uh I mean I I want to say Goldeneye was the first one uh to kind of uh really popularize the first person shooter genre on a console. Yeah. And it but it had you know with local deathmatch, but then we saw the the ones to come in that wake like a Halo, like a Call of Duty and, and other games in that ilk, you know, first person shooter but on a home console. Oh, now you can play online as well. Of course, now online play is ubiquitous. Yeah, but it wasn't back then. Sure wasn't. And it was a new, just mind-blowing thing. Now, I'm trying to, you know, think, imagine what it would have been like playing online against someone in Halo over 2001 internet connectivity. Yeah. I can't imagine it going terribly well. No, but, I mean, people still did it, and it was immensely popular. Sure was. So because of that, you know, Microsoft realized, hey, there's a market here. Online play is big. And in successive uh, generations of Xbox consoles, 
they've always had a big online component focus to almost everything they do. Yeah. Uh, and all that baked in because of the launch of the Xbox, or original Xbox console, I should say, on November 15th, 2001, that launched with its killer app, Halo Combat Evolved, the very first Halo game. Uh, you can't swing a cat on a Microsoft system without hitting a Halo game. But it all started right then, November 15th, 2001, so uh, 20 years old. That's that's a good amount of years old. It's a milestone anniversary. But also 20 years old is Metal Gear Solid 2, Sons of Liberty. And before that, we talked about the 10th anniversary of Elder Scrolls V Skyrim that first came out on the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, and PC platforms. So uh, a lot of big milestone gaming anniversaries this week. Absolutely. But uh, all worth talking about, and we hope you enjoyed us talking about it, and hope you enjoyed everything else on this show. If not, uh, let us know uh, about uh, your thoughts. Did you have uh, an original Xbox controller back in the day to go along with your original Xbox system? Let us know uh, your thoughts on that and anything else. You can email us info at thearcadeshow.com or hit us up on social media. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are at The Arcade Show on both those evil platforms. <laughs> Because they are evil. Yep. Oh, sorry. I called it Facebook. Should I call it Meta now? No, no. The platform's still Facebook. Oh, okay. The company that owns Facebook is Meta. Oh, the evil company is now Meta. Yeah. The, the evil company is Meta, just like the evil company that owns Google is called Alphabet. Oh. It's the exact same thing. All this hubbub on the internet of people being like, oh, is it going to be called Meta now? It's like, no, it's still going to be called Facebook. Like, they didn't change the name of Google when the company that owned Google changed its name to Alphabet. You don't say I'm doing an alphabet search. No, you're doing a Google search still. Just like you're using Facebook, whatever else. So that's all it is. Fair enough. You know, it's it's really just uh, rebranding themselves to a less evil name. <laughs> or more evil name when you think of all the metadata scandal that happened with Cambridge Analytica. But hey... Let's, let's not, let's not look too far into that, right? True, true. Uh, but yes, uh, we are also, if you haven't already, uh, available for your subscription on your favorite podcast provider, provided they are iTunes or Google Podcasts, <laughs> because that's where we are. Yes. If those aren't your favorite, make them your favorite and subscribe to us. Yes, exactly. Uh, and that about wraps us up for this week. So until next time, good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>